welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Bockel. The episode you're about to listen to is about the political thought of Hannah Arendt, and particularly what her conception of freedom was, and how that might relate to contemporary protest movements. My guest today to discuss this is Professor Roger Berkowitz. He's the academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities, and the Associate Professor of Politics, Human Rights, and Philosophy at Bard College. He speaks and writes regularly on questions of politics, free speech, technology and transhumanism, privacy, constitutionalism, and of course, Hannah Arendt. His books include The Gift of Science, Thinking in Dark Times, The Intellectual Origins of the Global Financial Crisis, and Artifacts of thinking. I, I was excited to do this episode because it's actually the first one we've done on the podcast on, specifically on Hannah Arendt, which is I think definitely an oversight on my part given how uh, beloved, essentially, that this thinker is. And I think we had a really great discussion. With that said, if you are interested in this, we definitely um, touch on a lot of themes in this conversation that I've covered a lot on the podcast, so there's a lot of episodes looking at particular conceptions, particular ideas of freedom. So I mention um, Philip Pettit in this interview, he's been on the podcast a bunch of times. There's a lot of different episodes on like what freedom means. One of the most popular episodes of all time is a solo one I did called uh, Positive and Negative Freedom. And likewise, I have a lot of episodes, both solo and otherwise, on contemporary protest movements and activism. So if this conversation is interesting to you, I encourage you to go back and check out all of them. One quick note I'll make just before we get to this, and I feel silly saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, is I've made a point that I think I'm probably not going to be covering the coronavirus on this show, as important and as consequential as it is. And look, I'm recording in New York from a state of um, near total shutdown of the the city. Um, I just feel like I don't have much to add to that relative to um, a lot of the other content that's being that's being produced on it, and it's just not an area of um, any relevant knowledge for me. I mention it only because, obviously. I give an account of mass protest movements that's fairly positive or sees a definite force for good in large-scale protests with some qualifications in this episode. With that said, and I understand this doesn't really need saying, but I'm just going to say it, in present times, please do not do, or please do not try and arrange large protests, large gatherings, anything like the Occupy Wall Street movement that we discussed. Obviously, the the main bit of advice we're, we're getting is to, what's the phrase, socially distance ourselves from other people. So big protests in general, good. At this specific moment, um, activists and organisers are just going to have to find different strategies for pushing back and protesting against injustice. And I've... Um, a lot of the people I know are in that space of working out how to, like, operationally reconfigure. So, you know, protests in general, good. At this specific moment, 
please don't. And I know that goes without saying, um, and I know I don't have to remind you of that, but I, know, I just I just felt the need to say it. Um, as always, if you like this podcast, please do support it. One of the simplest ways you can do that is if you like this episode, please do share it on social media. Almost all of the growth that we've seen on this podcast has been organic from just people sharing or recommending to friends. So if you do that, uh, thank you so much for doing it. Please continue. And if you listen regularly but haven't shared an episode yet, um, why not why not make this your first one? If you're able to support in a more monetary way, we have a suggested donation of two dollars, and it's suggested because I know you know in this circumstance as well as in many others, um, not everyone um, is able to contribute financially, and that's totally fine. Um, if you're in any way concerned about money right now please put it towards things for you. This should be the second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth thing, one hundredth thing on your list of priorities for things to spend money on. I want it to go out for free to everyone. Um, If you are able to chip in a couple of bucks, you know, I would love to have them. All of the costs associated with the podcast are covered by listeners. So um, if you would like to help me continue making all of these conversations available for free, um, you can be a part of that by going to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And again, I've been suggesting a donation of $2 an episode, but that is literally a suggestion. You can pay nothing, you can pay 50 cents, you can pay 100 bucks if you're so inclined. I would not stop you from doing that. So again, Um, If you would like to um, be a part of helping these episodes go out for free and advertisement-free, we're never going to do commercial advertising on this podcast because, honestly, it gets in the way of good content. Uh, Please do check out uh, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And, as always, for the people who are already sponsoring a big thank you, I am genuinely grateful for you making it possible for me to continue doing this show. So, with that all done, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Roger Berkowitz. Okay, I am joined today by Professor Roger Berkowitz. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Toby. Good to be here. So, just to start with, um, how do you sort of self-describe your work? What do you teach and think and write about? Um, well, that's changed a lot. I, I, I have an interdisciplinary PhD and a law degree. Uh, and so I, for many years, and still to some degree, said that I wrote and think about justice. Um, my first book was called The Gift of, of, of Science, Leibniz in the Modern Legal Tradition, and it was about how the rise of science changed the nature of what justice and the law uh, are and how um, we lost an idea of justice as something ineffable or asp- aspirational, and it became much more uh, an attempt to, to achieve 
uh, certain ends through through legal means. And so I've, through much of my writing, been in, interested in the question of, um, I guess, a kind of genealogy of, of modern political and legal terms uh, on how really the modern age, the rise of science um, has transformed uh, our ideas of justice, politics, truth, freedom, um, things of that sort. Uh, about 15 years ago, I started uh, teaching at Bard College, uh, and um, Hannah Arendt was was buried there. Her husband Heinrich Blucher taught there for 17 years and was in a very influential professor. And then she left her library to the college. And uh, in 2006, I, I organized a conference uh, on her hundredth birthday. Uh, and it went very well, and her literary executor asked us to, in a sense, take over the Hannah Arendt Center. And for the last 15 years, that center has been growing and doing a lot of public programs. Uh, you know, we don't think of ourselves as a as a, a place where people come and simply do scholarship on Hannah Arendt, although some do. We have a lot of her her library. Um, but it's more a place where, in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, we try and nurture a kind of engaged, bold, provocative political thinking about the world. And in the last 15 years, I guess I would say that that's where my uh, intellectual and and um, and political uh, work has gone in that direction to to try and think with, through, and against Arendt, uh, and to uh, speak about the main important political and ethical issues that we face uh, in her example. So if someone's approaching Arendt for the first time, how would you describe this thinker to them? Because this is someone who's not just like big in that they're a big name. They're very, if I sort of read the room right, Arendt is very loved, I think. Like people have a sort of special place in their hearts for this person's work in a way that perhaps for all his influence, they maybe don't with someone like Rawls or something like that. It's special to people, right? I think that's right, Toby. Um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, it's been a strange and, and, and uh, growth in, 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 in the way she's loved and revered. And sometimes in weird ways, uh, you know, I think you may know the story um, that when she died, Isaiah Berlin, who she and he did not get along, said that she uh, was an overrated uh, political journalist who would be forgotten. Um, and clearly that has not been the case. I mean, I think one can now safely say that she is the most read and taught political thinker of the 20th century. And certainly if one of the most influential and, and, and you know, arguably one of the most important um, in the last, and I think one of the things that makes her special I, there's a number of things that I think make her special, Toby. One is that she um, she wrote about the world. Uh, so very few of her books are what we would normally think of as books of political theory or, or books of philosophy. Uh, you know, her her major books are The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is in many ways a an intellectual genealogy or history of uh, Bolshevism and Nazism. Uh, the Human Condition, which is um, Again, a, a book about what science and the rise of modern science does to what it means to be human. 
uh, is one way to, to, to think about that book, and I think probably the right way to think about that book. Her book On Revolution is, again, about the American and French revolutions and how they create two different revolutionary traditions. Uh, a lot of her essays, whether it's about artificial intelligence in her essay, The Conquest of Space, or uh, about how to do education in the crisis of education, um, you know, they're they're about the world or her stuff, you know, and then her infamous stuff on on Little Rock, on race, which is very controversial. And she was she was provocative. She was bold. I often, you know, when people say to me today, well, what should I read? I always say I look for people who, when I read them, I don't know what their conclusion is going to be, but I know that it will be interesting and well thought out. And I think Arendt was the greatest in that in that regard, the greatest thinker of the 20th century. You never knew where she was going to come out. You knew that it would be um, a fascinating journey how she got there, and um, and to me that's that's a uh, it's it she is she's known as you know the person who thinks not philosophizes or theorizes. Um, you know she says there are no dangerous thoughts. Thinking itself is dangerous. And what that means is is complicated for her, but it basically means that thinking is always going to tear down any certainties. And she had no reverence for dogmas or certainties of any kind, be they liberal or conservative or traditional. And and that kind of really radical irreverence, radical thinking, um, to me, uh, is what defines Hannah Arendt's work and makes her um, so exciting uh, as someone to think with today. To add to that, look at the issues that she spent so much of her time thinking about populism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism. These are issues we're, we're struggling with. Um, the, the danger of intellectuals and expert rules. She's one of the few intellectuals who really worried about the dangers of intellectuals. Um, and, and that's something, uh, something I'm writing a lot about right now and, and something, um, that really almost no one else uh, who's an intellectual, spends so much time on as her. The only other one is actually Friedrich Hayek, an interesting combination. So I'm actually trying to write about Arendt and Hayek in that regard now. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then, of course, for her, democracy, um, participation, freedom. For her, and this comes to what you and I are going to talk about today, the, the number one, the, the, the core ideas in Arendt's thinking are always freedom, what does it mean to be free? It's not simply a, a product of the will. It's a product of being free, of acting with other people to create power. That's, and that's her idea of a deep participatory democracy. And thinking leads to meaning. And meaning means that to be human and to be meaningful is to matter, which means to be able to make things and create things in the world that last, that other people will notice, and thus to be public and to appear in public so that appearance overtakes being as what it means to be human against the entire philosophical tradition that puts being above appearance. And then as a result for her, you can't think about what it means to be human without the idea of immortality, that humans are mortal creatures, but that to be truly human is to participate in some world that will last and thus be immortal. And these are thoughts that are often out of time today, there sometimes I think some people would say they're they're thought to be outdated, and yet um, they're really they're they're meaningful, and I think many people find them 
compelling. Um, so. so can we start with freedom then? Because actually I read this particular conception of freedom as definitely you can make it relevant to a number of things that we're talking about in politics and the news right now. But let's, let's just start with freedom. So you said it's not just freedom of the will, it's freedom as participating in actions in public and collaboration with others. Could you cash that out a bit? In, in the simplest terms, what is freedom to a rent? So um, at the very most simplest level, uh, freedom for our rent is to, be, is to act. Uh, she says that freedom and acting are the same, or to be free and to act are the same, which is something she says in, in numerous places. So what is action? Um, action for her is to do something new, to do something spontaneous, unexpected, and um, thus to be noticed. And if you are noticed, in doing something new and unexpected, people will talk about it and tell stories about it. And they could tell stories of the kind that you're a criminal and you need to be punished or you need to be killed or executed because you're, you're doing is new and radical and we don't like it. But every once in a while, someone comes along and says something new or does something new. And they say, I have a dream, right, that we're going to live in a different way race, in, in race relations. And people talk about it and listen to it, and it transforms um, the way they think, and it transforms the very world we live in. And so freedom for her is the capacity humans have to act, and in acting, gather other people together to act with you, to speak about what you've done, to tell stories that and create new institutions that remake the world. And so freedom is, for her, the power to act with others to remake the world. So, as opposed to, like, a pure negative conception, it's necessarily um, a, a communal conception, because it's, it's the, the, it, there's two sides to it. It requires action, but it also requires that action to be recognized with others or done in conjunction with others. I think, I think that's right. Um, on the one hand, uh, freedom can be simply my freedom as an individual uh, to do something unique, so spontaneous or different. Um, and so freedom in its in that level does not need to be communal. But insofar as freedom is going to um, have a political meaning, um, then what I do has to then um, inspire others to do it with me. Um, and so power, when I said when I said that freedom is the human capacity to act to change the world, I guess I could add in one other term, if that's okay, which is that freedom is the human capacity to act in such a way that it gathers others around oneself so that we act in unison, or as she says, we act in concert in such a way that we attain power. And with that power, we change the world. Mm. So, um... 
Following along from that, then, could you go over the distinction between freedom and liberation in her work? Yeah, um, she she makes this distinction between freedom and liberation in her uh, work on revolution and in other works related to that. Uh, and, and, and it's most simply understood as this. Um, take the, the Arab Spring, uh, which happened... Um, in the early part of the, the, the this this new century, and um, you had a situation in which, in state after state, you created uh, protest movements that led to the um, liberation of a society from a dictator or a monarch or whatever you want to call um, some of these ruling autocracies, um, and. This is what she calls liberation. It's liberating ourselves from uh, um, some sort of a political oppression, from arbitrary, unaccountable power. Um, but simply doing that does not lead to the foundation of what she calls freedom, which is um, the ability to act to create new institutions, new uh, power structures. And so she says a revolution is not the same as a liberation. A liberation is simply throwing off the old power structures. A revolution is the founding of freedom and the founding of institutions that allow people to enact freedom in ways that create a new common world in which they can live with freedom. And too often, as she says, um, revolutions don't don't, don't make it to that second stage. They simply liberate us, but without ever founding a new um, uh, uh, power structure that would actually um, guarantee uh, uh, a life of freedom. And so that's, that's her distinction between freedom and liberation. On another just sort of conceptual clarity question, how would this compare with a sort of modern neo-Republican conception of freedom? so Pettit, Skinner, someone like that, in which freedom is defined as the absence of domination, domination meaning arbitrary, unaccountable power. It would seem like that's definitely part of the story here, but then there's another part or another degree of emphasis that maybe isn't so heavy in the Republican story, which is the freedom as an act of collective creation, if you want to call it that. So that's that's right. Um, for her, uh, civil rights, uh, and by civil rights I mean in the most general sense, the, the right to vote, the right to uh, to be free of um, unaccountable power, uh, the right to free speech, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, civil rights are uh, important for her in the sense that they are part of a limited government, uh, which she believes in very strongly. Um, but civil rights themselves are, are not the uh, fulfillment of what she calls uh, living freely. Um, living freely uh, is is not just having those negative rights, the freedom from unaccountable power, um, but freedom actually means um, the power to build and enact um, 
a world uh, we humans can make so that we matter and create lasting, immortal institutions. Um, one thing that's very important for her is she will say that in the end, um, civil rights mean nothing without freedom, without an, without active participation and freedom. And, and her argument is, you know, it's very simple. Uh, in the end, um, civil rights, if they're simply constitutional rights or legal guarantees, will simply be uh, overrun and ignored um, if they are if 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 a if a demagogue or uh, a democracy, either one, uh, wants to uh, ignore and overrun them, unless the people who support those civil rights um, have institutions in which they can act and resist those uh, incursions. And so um, she, she 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 cites John Adams, who here cites Montesquieu, who says that laws are paper tigers. Uh, and the only way to um, protect against uh, unjust power, arbitrary domination, is by having multiple sources of power so that if any one source of power uh, wants to take control, there are other sources that will rise up in combination and resist it. So only power can fight power, she says, not laws or constitutions. Yeah. And that, I guess that is quite a Republican thought in a way as well. Um, here's my next question, though. Is It would seem to me like a very natural place for that argument to go, is to the politics of protest. Um, and you can map that on two ways. One is this necessity of holding power accountable, and it's not merely enough to have constitutional guarantees you need an active citizenry that, that will um, challenge power when needed. That's sort of like an instrumental argument. But there's another one which you could make as, as protest as a sort of intrinsic good, in that when you think about big mass gatherings or Occupy Wall Street or the civil rights marches or, you know, whatever, you can identify those as an, a locus, as an arena of freedom, as as a good in themselves, because people are coming together and being seen by others and at least potentially changing the world with others. So I could see two clear through lines from that idea of freedom to the politics of protest. I'll pause there. Did I get, do you think I got that right? So, so I agree um, that this conception can lead to a kind of glorification of protest and, and maybe even a glorification of, of violence as a kind of um, opposition to the establishment or the system. Um, and I know we're going to get into this a little later, so I'm not going to say much about it, but um, someone who I've been in a lot of conversation with over the last few years is, is Michael White, um, who was one of the people at Adbusters who who helped begin um, and came up with the memes that started Occupy Wall Street. And he's recently written a book called The End of Protest, um, in which he says, protest is broken and the people know it worldwide. Um, he thinks that Occupy Wall Street, which he thinks is the most successful protest of recent times, failed. And I think one of the projects I'm involved in, and I think Mike and I disagree as to the reasons why it failed, but that's that's another story. 
uh, is that I agree with Micah. I think that the 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 turn to protest in contemporary politics and contemporary political theory is a dead end and is a mistake. And um and and I think we need to radically rethink why protest is failing and and I have my my reasons for thinking that and I know we're going to get into that so I'll stop. Well, no no let, let's just keep going with it because then I'm going to reroute the other questions to the end because then the the, the conversation just follows. Um so that's interesting then. Um why I mean I I'm just going to have to ask though but by, by by failing there's two ways in which it could be failing right just building on the point I made. One is that it's failing to impact outcomes. So Wall Street did not lead to um, a radical egalitarianism, say, right? Although, I mean, you can find local instances where it does seem to impact outcomes. So there's that sort of empirical case. There's then the other case about um, are there intrinsic goods in protest? Um, is there a value in people coming together and participating in these types of things on a more fundamental level? Wh which level are you going for when you say protest has failed? I think a little of both. Um, you know, Micah is interested in the first question. He thinks Occupy Wall Street failed to achieve its outcomes. Now, part of that is that his outcomes um, is that he wants a revolution. Um, he he he's a revolutionary, self-proclaimed, and um, and he thinks that um, Occupy Wall Street was not simply about. Um, achieving a fairer tax structure, if such a thing were to come, which so far, of course, it has not. Um, he wants uh, a radically reworked, rethought idea of what living together and government is, uh, very much along the lines of um, living in a in a more uh, decentralized, local, uh, non-statist uh, world. Um, and he thinks that was the overriding ideal behind Occupy Wall Street assemblies and 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 and, and as a way of life, as a way of protest, and it failed. I think although it, although that might be setting the bar quite high for what success and failure looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, he's a revolutionary, so from his point of view, it didn't work. But I think you can even make the argument. You know, I, I think that the people who make the argument that Occupy succeeded say, well, they changed the dialogue, right? Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, we have uh, President Trump and we have uh, a tax bill that was passed two years ago that is, if anything, more regressive and, and more punitive to uh, people than anything we've had. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, while you can say the 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 jury's still out. Maybe I, I I certainly don't think it worked on a on a policy level either, uh, no matter what the 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 goals were, um, you know. So on a on a on a on a level of policy, I, I don't think it worked, um, and on a level of changing the culture or changing our ideas, um, it certainly did give uh, a a large number of people a taste of a kind of uh, new way of living, a kind of living in freedom, living in participation in general assemblies. And, um, and I think that taste was very powerful, and a lot of people um, really became um, enamored with that kind of life. 
Um, but what they have not yet um, figured out is how to translate that into a political movement. Um, and and that's something uh, that that's, I think. And so one, I think the way that a lot of academic political theorists have begun to take this up um, is to say that what protests seek is not to make policy changes and not revolution and not to take over government and not to make political change in an institutional level, but to simply um, use protest to live outside the state in what people um, uh, will increasingly uh, call interstitial spaces of non-state uh, freedom, or what that's what someone like Simon Critchley will call it, or, or someone like Dave Graber will call it um, momentary advertisements of freedom or experiences of visionary inspiration um, that, uh, that people come to love as temporary bubbles of freedom within a state system that doesn't allow freedom. Um, or someone like Jacques Ranciere uh, will argue that freedom is simply dissensus, um, the, the practice of dissensus and destabilization that undoes and refutes all processes of cohesion and consensual politics. Um, and so they begin to uh, say, look, politics is no longer possible as far as I'm concerned. That's what I take these people to be saying as a, as a centralized communal activity. And all we can do is um, find freedom in opposing the establishment and imposing the state and opposing the system. And so uh, a politics of freedom today is a politics of protest, of standing against um, and 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 this is to me the way a number of academics have uh, internalized and responded to um, this 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 new um, politics of of protest um, in a way that I think uh, is is wrong, and I think Arendt helps us very much understand. Um, why it is wrong. So before we get to your critique of that, just to like make sense of this in my own head, I've been using this language of um, instrumental and intrinsic goods that might come from protest or some sort of direct action. So the thinkers you're talking about, essentially the instrumental just falls away entirely. It's just given up on and the only thing is the intrinsic. Like, it's, it, it just becomes about enjoying this, this sort of freedom, untethered from even the aspiration to affect outcomes. I think that's right. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure if they would go 100% in that direction, but that's, that's where, if you read them, they're, they're heading. They're, you know, they all share a basic view that a politics of instrumentalism is is no longer possible. So, for example, you know, my friend Simon Critchley, who I, I think is wonderful, you know, says that our modern politics um, has a motivational deficit. We, we simply don't think we can make changes anymore. And that um, the old Marxist idea, which is that you were going to try and create a politics that moves from capitalism to communism uh, and you empower the proletariat, has has been replaced by a politics not of Marxism but of identity politics, as he says it, which 
is an anti-institutional politics that simply seeks not to actually make political changes, but to empower us as political subjectivities. And in doing so, um, we can the, the way to do that is not to take over the state, um, but to empower us to have rallies or do art or engage in moments of self-assertion um, that are meaningful. And, uh, and that's as much as politics can do. And someone like David Graeber, again, will say, um, we've, we've entered a stage in which we can know politics needs to give up on trying to take over the state and state institutions, which are corrupt and, and meaningless. And what we want is simply direct action, which gives us momentary advertisements and momentary experiences of freedom. And that's where we'll find our meaning in life. Um, that, to me, I take it, is a widespread uh, a tendency of a lot of political thinking today. Um, and, uh, and so that's and, – and I think you're – so what you're saying is right. It's largely given up on the instrumental, at least on a grand scale, and, and, and looked at the intrinsic element of freedom. So, yeah, I've encountered this um... – so, you know, I'm not um, an academic. I've spent a lot of my time working for various left-wing organisations. I have been a part of protest movements. I've been a part of left-wing organising and so on. And these sorts of views, albeit expressed in quite a different language, are sort of gaining a, a, a traction within sort of um, parts of the parts of the left. Um, I'll tell you why I'm a little uneasy with this narrative, um, and then you can go on your critique of it. Um, I'm a little uneasy because there's this, like, implied opposition or distinction between or incompatibility between, like, direct action and political participation. Like, people say you're not going to change the world just by voting. We need to be, like, in the streets whatever. And to my mind, it's like, these are not mutually exclusive things, you know? You can be in the streets one day and vote the next, and in fact, probably both in isolation, both by themselves, are going to be insufficient. Um, maybe both together will be insufficient, but certainly I think one by themselves won't be. The other is it just seems really epistemically overconfident, this idea that we just know we can't change the basic structures of the government, seems to me as kind of ridiculous a blanket statement as to say that we know we can. You know, like, on a, you know, just you know, we don't know where the economy will be a year from now. We don't know who'll win the next presidential election. We don't know whether <laughs> capitalism will still be here, or democracy for that matter, will still be here in 50 years. We just don't know these things. And we don't even really know to what degree we have agency over them. We, there's a, there's, it's just too confident, that view. I think. And the final one is, it's very well for academics to say the point in going to these protests is not to affect outcomes, it's to, like, gain a certain set of goods from the experience. But the people going to the protests, and 95% of them, believe themselves to be going to affect outcomes, right? It seems a bit odd to, to tell people that their motivation isn't what their motivation is, or that it shouldn't be that. So those are just some thoughts I have on that narrative. I'll let you go. I, I happen to agree with almost everything you've said. Um, 
you know, a few things to say. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that certain protests, and we can just use Occupy as an example here, were not as successful as 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 some hoped, um, was because I think many of the people you're talking about who want in, uh, to create instrumental change didn't join the Occupy protest because the protests imagined themselves as anarchic protests that were not asking for any change and or any um, uh, any particular instrumental uh, goods. I, 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 you know, this is this gets very controversial very quickly, but they, these became largely elite driven um, protests, theoretical driven protests. Um, but I will amend that and say supplemented with something that many elites don't usually do, which is the the acquisition of experience. I think what made the Occupy protest so powerful for many people was that it was the first time that they actually experienced what it means to live in a certain way, anarchically and freely. Uh, even if, you know, as I as I said at the time when I did speak to Occupy groups, you should not be occupying a park, you should be occupying a bank or a town hall. That's the difference. And, um, you know, the the decision to engage experientially in freedom, I thought, was incredibly powerful. The decision to do so in parks as opposed to town halls was, I think, instrumentally disastrous um, because it led to uh, a kind of solipsism, if you will. Mm. I think this is a bit of an aside, but I think there are real divides on the left not just about what we want to achieve, but like just at, at, at an almost visualization level, what do we think change looks like? Are we talking about policy outcomes? Are we talking about institutions? You know, the phrase incrementalism has got a bad name, but like, is it the line on the graph going up or are we visualizing some sort of radical break, some sort of like Soviet moment? And I think you see that and it's, it's really hard because a lot of the people on the left have that sort of radical break view, which commits them to a certain way of engaging politically that then is off-putting or unappealing or simply seems unrealistic to people who might share goals with them. But, I mean, you see this um, even with something like the Bernie Sanders movement, is a lot of people were in it for the talk of revolution, even though I don't think anything he's proposing really would qualify as a revolution. And so the fact that he uses the language of revolution makes him deeply attractive to one part of the left, but then it also turns off a lot of people whose votes it turns out that he would need, you know? I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that in many ways, um, the divide on the left, if we call it the left, or if you want to call it the Democratic Party or, or whatever you want to call it in the United States, um, is, is less a divide over policy, because I think very, very little actually divides someone like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden on policy, uh, and more uh, um, one of, of, of one, on one side, a group of people who want to um, imagine themselves as against the establishment and the state, as outsiders fighting angrily against it, 
and on the other side, people who uh, want to work within it. Um, and I think certainly um, Sanders and Warren, right? Because if I gave you their policy platforms, you'd be bu- and didn't just took the names off, you'd be buggered to tell them apart. But people felt very differently about these candidates. You know what I mean? And I think the the difference is um, ideological. Um, Obviously, ideology informs, but it's it's that root, how are we seeing the world, more than like any specific set of proposals, you know? Absolutely. And I, and I want to come back to a, a point you made a couple minutes ago, which I think relates to this, which is you said um, there seems to be an epistemological claim by many people in the ideological movement, the Sanders side or the protest side, which is um, that we know we can't change the system and so we sort of have to tear it down. Um, and, you know, this is something that actually is at the very core of Arendt's thinking. Um, you know, she came out of, uh, you know, living, she was born in 1906 in Germany. She was Jewish. She was arrested in 1933. She escaped. She was put in a camp in 1940 in France. She escaped again. She made her way to the United States. And what she said over and over again as she wrote about this is, it's so easy to say there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that will change things. And yet what she says is at the foundation of what it means to be human is that we have the capacity to act new, act in spontaneous ways that are unexpected. Nothing is destined. And um, and so one of the, I think one of the fascinating experiences of reading Hannah Arendt is that so much of her writing is deeply pessimistic in its analysis of where we are. And yet every time at the end of any book or essay, it ends on a notion of hope because she does believe that um, we can build, that things will change. And uh, there's no, there's no sort of destined end to human freedom. Um, Another element of, 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 of what this means is she says that today the reason we have so much trouble with a politics of revolution or a politics of change today is that at least on the left, and let's just stay on the left for a second, a lot of us know what we're fighting against, but we don't know what we're fighting for. And, and this is a, a point she makes in a number of her essays. And to me, it's it's one of the essential ones. What she says is that in the 1960s um, and 70s, and she's writing this, she's writing a lot in the 1960s and 70s about the left. It was inspiring to see these 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 student movements, the civil rights movements, the anti-war movements, um, and she took very seriously that these were exciting times in which people were waking up from decades of a kind of pacifism and apathy. Um, But what she said is that too often these movements simply embraced, in her mind, um, an already failed kind of socialist Marxist paradigm that was 100 years old or 200 years old. Um, and that had never worked and had never inspired enough people, except in very dangerous, negative and violent ways. And and what she said is that um, the reason that she thought that what the 1960s showed 
is that we were in what she calls a revolutionary situation, a situation in which the power of the establishment and the elite and the structures of government had failed in many ways. People no longer trusted it or respected it. And she says power, in a sense, was lying in the streets. But a revolution requires revolutionaries who are willing to pick up that power and act to create new power structures. And what she says is the first prerequisite for that is an understanding of what the people want, of what we're fighting for, that can that can that can appeal to a wide enough range of the population that they will actually join you and support you and fight with you. And the revolutionaries, so-called revolutionary in the 60s, and I would say the so-called revolutionaries of the of the left today, um are still are not actually listening to the people. They're they they're still too governed by ideological commitments of the past and not actually trying to find um ways forward that a majority of the people um want to hear, which is why um you know they are continuing to to fail to to actually gain a majority. So a lot of this conversation, I mean, it's just in my head because I just recorded it as a solo episode a few days ago. I sort of tried to do an ideological analysis of sort of what went right and what went wrong for progressives in the the sort of last presidential election. Not the, the one we're currently in, sorry. Um, and one sort of thought here that I kept returning to is I think on the left we mistake... A, a general feeling of anti-establishmentism, a general feeling of resenting those in power or feeling that they shouldn't be in power, with a much more specific set of ideological commitments. Everyone, if you say, do you hate the establishment, will say yes, but then that doesn't imply they buy every point of the Occupy narrative or the Bernie Sanders narrative. And so I think we've sort of convinced ourselves that ideological goals that are actually ideological ways of thinking I should say ideological ways of thinking that are actually quite narrow and only exist within highly politicized organizations and communities are widely shared and they're not like most people's commitments are much looser and less coherent you know does that make sense oh absolutely I mean I mean I, I... I, I try to put it this way to two people. Um, power, the establishment is corrupt and distrusted. I mean, the amount of money in politics is disgusting. And I, I, and I, think, I think even the people in power know that. Um, and, and so when people say, well, then why aren't, you know, and then what people on the left say today is, well, I, as I had a student say to me uh, just a week ago, we know what the right way to do it is to solve all these problems if they would just let us. And I said, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, first of all, that sounds a little bit like Stalin, but what is it you mean? And and the answer I got from this ex, this former student of mine was, well, take, for example, housing. We know how to solve the housing problem. And... I said to her, ah, I understand what you're saying. So this is true. 
we know how to solve the housing problem. We can dispossess certain people of their houses. We can build new houses. We can do it. And it will cost us a lot of money, but we can do it. We also know how to solve the health care problem. We can you know, spend enormous amount of money. We can take money from here. We can move it here. We can build hospitals. We can solve that problem. We know how to solve the immigration problem. We can open borders, let everyone in, do this. We know how to solve... Um, you know, the uh, the environmental problem, we get rid of oil, we bring in solar, all of these things. And the beauty of experts or the danger of experts, as Hannah Arendt will tell us, is that um, once experts think they know how to solve a problem, they think, ah, oh, we should solve the problem. We know how to do it. And so as the Bernie Sanders people will tell you, each one of these things if you ask people, do you want this kind of health care or this kind of environmental plan or this kind of this is popular, but you put them all together, you're talking about a radical transformation of society. You change housing, you change health care, you change environment, you change immigration and free education, all of that. And then you're talking about instead of 15 percent of our GDP, which is spent by the government, you're talking about 30 to 40 percent of the GDP talking uh, owned by the government. And it's a radical transformation of society that I don't think most people want. And that's where um, a lot of the mistake is right now on the left. As so far as I understand I've got two thoughts on this. And I do want to sort of get through to the end because I think we might fall out on different places as to like the ultimate um, conclusions about the value or disvalue of protest. But just riffing off what you said, I have long held, and I said this about Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, I said it about Warren, I said it about Sanders. You would be much better off picking the two or three most popular policies, never mind if they're perceived as politically radical or not. Just like, I think, so I think for Warren, the wealth tax, that polls very, very well. People seem to like it. Um, something to do with student loans, maybe. And then one more, you know, right? Like maybe some sort of political anti-corruption measure, I think would be good. But whatever it is, just pick a few and then only talk about them. Because I don't think it's like line-by-line opposition. I think like the total package feels overwhelming to people. And like, they can't... It, it just feels implausible to them, you know? Um, whether or not that feeling's right or not is up for debate. You might argue, yes, even if it is a radical change, it's something we should do. I'm not against that argument. But I think just in terms of what's going to win people over, and that's also more realistic, even in the best-case scenario, a future Democratic president will only pass one or two big things. You might as well be clear up front about what it is you're going for. Um, the other thought I have runs something like this. We talk about the revolutionary moment, and we talk about the distrust people have in political systems, be that a sort of general distrust or a more specific set of um, ideological narratives about it. Um, I think the big open question of Western democracies in the last... 30, 40, 50 years, is why trust in government, belief in government, faith that it will do things for you, has just slowly been falling. And I've talked to people who work on this, and there's a bunch of different answers. But I think one of them is this quite, like, Hannah Arendt notion that people intrinsically, if you can say this, people desire freedom, people desire to make changes in the world in collaboration with others. And 
that to simply come together and have a protest isn't enough. It has to be tethered to something, at least potentially tethered to an outcome. And you can say people shouldn't feel that way, but they do. And for a variety of reasons which are complicated and structural, and I can go into, but I won't, the ability of even quite broad electoral majorities in this country to affect policy outcomes has diminished. So I think the federal government, there's only been like four or five big pieces of federal legislation in the in the last few decades, and two of those were tax cuts, two of them were wars, and the other was a response to a recession. So the ability of people to mobilise to affect an outcome appears to be at a low watermark at the same time as sort of trust and belief in the system appears to be at a low watermark. But I don't think the solution to that is a complete divestiture from the system. I think the thought is, what's happening in our structures that desire for change doesn't equate to the reality of change? And I think if you, once you look at it on an institutional level, there are changes to our structures that we could make that wouldn't get us a socialist revolution, but would restore the link between an electoral majority and policy outcome. So that was quite long, but that's sort of how I think about, like, um, that's sort of what where you made me go in my head with that analysis. <clears throat> I, uh, that's I, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Um, I, I find uh, I think that's really right. Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, the, the 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 question that I've been struggling with and thinking about for the last number of years uh, with and through Arendt, but also others, um, is what you just described as the big question, which is why trust in government has been slowly falling. Um, and you know, I think there's a number of reasons for that. And let me just give a couple that, that makes sense to me right now. Um, the first one uh, and the one that Arendt um, writes about most specifically um, is uh, that um, is the rise of of bureaucracy and centralized government. Uh, um, for her, um, bureaucracy and the bigness of governments is one of the greatest threats to human freedom. And uh, as bureaucracies rise, citizen with the very essence of a bureaucracy for her is what she calls it's the rule of nobody. Um, you know, you go to you 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 know I, I'll give I'll give an example. Uh, a couple of years ago during a flood. There was a, a community uh, in the Northeast, I think it was New Jersey, um, in which a tree fell across a stream. And um, the stream was blocked and it led to a flood of the community. And the mayor called out some people to tow the tree away. But before they could do so, the EPA said, no, this is a protected stream. You can't um, move anything that's in it without, uh, you know, uh, permission from the EPA. So they went to the EPA and the EPA say, well, actually, you have to go to, to this other division. It took three or four months before they could move this tree from the stream. You know, that's and that's when you have government trying to effect change. You know, a couple of years ago in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, we had a mosquito infestation. No, why? But mosquitoes were everywhere. 
And, you know, we organized and we got groups together and we were calling our representatives. Nothing was happening. And finally, we got 10 people from the New York City government on a panel. We all showed up with thousands of us there, actually. And every one of them got up and said, I've done this and I can't do any more. And the next one got up and said, I've done this. This is my job. And I showed up and said, this is like Hannah Arendt described this situation exactly. Your bureau can't do it. Your bureau can't do it. Your bureau can't do it. Here we are as citizens. Who do we talk to? And each one of you says, well, it's not my job. That's the essence of a government of bureaus, a government of offices. And what Arendt says that it does is it disenfranchises and disempowers citizens. And the very nature of a Republican, little r, Republican, Democratic government is that people believe they can actually make a difference, that they can matter. And in a government of bureaucracy, you lead to this incredible frustration. And she says, um, this frustration can take two parts. It can be apathetic, in which people um, simply don't participate because they're frustrated that they can't make a difference. Or it can lead to indignation, um, in which um, people uh, simply say the whole thing is stupid and they become passive until one day they are mobilized by an ideologue, and this can lead to a kind of demagogic totalitarianism. And she says that this indignation response can lead to what we've called the politics of protest. Um, it can lead to a sense that the whole thing is corrupt, the whole thing is silly, we can't have any impact on it, let's tear it down, let's burn it down, which I think is the Trump response. You know, we can argue about whether it's part of the Bernie response or not. I, I think there's differences, and yet I think there's some similarities, and, and we shouldn't just lump them together. But um, I think the politics of indignation is deeply rooted in this frustration of action um, by bureaucracy. And, and, and that is um, one aspect of what's causing people to, as you said, lose trust in government. I'm going to name one more, if you don't mind. Um, which is that increasingly as government gets bigger and more centralized, the problems become more complicated and more theoretical. Uh, theoretical in the sense that you have, to, you, have to, you have to begin thinking about things in statistics. And um, what that leads to is that you need more and more the people who run the bureaus of government to be intellectuals, experts, trained. You know, I mean, 60 years ago, half of the U.S. House of Representatives did not have a college education. Now, 99% do and 100% of the senators. Imagine today electing a president like Lyndon Johnson who didn't have a college degree. It's almost unheard of. I, I, in fact, I don't think there's a member of Congress who doesn't. I could stand to be corrected there, but it's almost I, uniform. Well, it's like 99% of I think it's do. 99%. One mem I think one member of the House may not. I'm not sure. I, I could be corrected, but it's, it's yeah. overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And and then think of the bureau, the administrative state, what, what, what some people call the deep state. These are all experts, and these experts have biases. Um, I was explaining that to you a little while ago when I said that, you know, the housing experts, because they think they can solve the housing crisis, have a bias that we should sell, save it. And the, and the healthcare experts, you know, when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders say the experts say we can do this, well, they're right. If we don't think about anything else, we can do this. 
But we have these biases that we actually think that because we know how to solve this as an expert, we should solve it. And I think this expert bias, this is is something, um, you know, when, when you have a country like the United States in which the majority of people do not have college educations, um, these, these experts come across as out of touch, as arrogant, as contemptuous, and often they are. Um, and, and I think that's, a, that's the second cause. It's related. But I think um, you're creating a situation in which, and Arendt talks about this in, the, in, in her essay on violence. It's actually one of the, it's, it's mostly in the footnotes, and so most people ignore it. But what she says is, you're actually creating a new race war. But the race is not between black and white, but between those who have brain power and college degrees and those who don't. And she says that this new race war will define the next great conflagration in, in the West. She says the, the, the minority of people who are the educated elites will insist on governing. They will be opposed by the majority of people. And that the only way they will be able to control them is through a kind of tyrannical um, regime. It's kind of like the argument of the rise of meritocracy, right? Because meritocracy was originally intended. It was originally not meant to be something good. It was meant to be something that was being critiqued and satirised. Is that you'll get this increasingly vanishing... I'd like to take you up on the other side of that argument, though, which is this idea of, like, the centralisation of power and how a sort of direct experience of democratic freedom sort of requires it to be quite immediate and quite local. Um, Just to add to your list of causes of distrust, I'll throw two more out there, which I won't spend any time on, but I just think are there. One is rising inequality, and the other is the the decreasing power of working and middle-class people vis-a-vis the decline of institutions like unions and so on. So that's just a quick note. I think those are two other things that, that feed into that story. Um, Now, there's been this debate going back to um, the beginning of democracies in ancient Greece about, like, how big can they be and still deliver the types of freedom that we associate with them, right? So the thought goes, you know, if you have the democracy like in Athens where you just put 10,000 people on a hill and have them cast votes, right? Um, Which sounds like a wonderful thing to participate in. Um then it's it's necessarily constrained. Like, can you do that with 100,000 people, a million? Um, you go through to Rousseau, I think, is probably the most famous example of this argument, saying, um, really, there's, there, there is sort of a size limit on the type of organisation that can achieve this sort of freedom. I think the... Um, the um, Hannah Arendt view would be you sort of solve that through, like, federalism, right? As you have smaller things which can have freedom within an overarching structure. I'll admit I don't have a fully theorised position on that, but I sometimes am sceptical, and I don't mean to be someone who says, like, the internet with the internet now all things are possible. It often seems like they're often quite the same. But I think of something like the Bernie Sanders movement, and for all I talked about, like, it's failed in its ultimate goal, I do always also try to be quite sensitive, same with Occupy, to the fact that these clearly meant a lot to many people 
right? People clearly really believed in them, and really got something out of them, even if they ultimately failed in their political goals. Um, which I wouldn't want to take away from them. And, you know, the Bernie Sanders thing is a national campaign that, you know, spans all sorts of geographic regions. And people were still able to, you know, it doesn't always have to be the town hall or the, what is Rousseau, free farmers sitting underneath an oak tree discussing their business. It, it can be this thing that occurs on a bigger level and with, like, greater geographical spread. And so I don't want to say, like, the internet makes mass freedom possible, but, like, there's surely an element of truth to that story too, right? Absolutely. Um, And this is actually uh, another area I'm quite interested in. So you you brought up this question of size, and um, you you know that, uh, you know, in, in during the constitutional debates around the United States Constitution, um, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists was one of the big questions was, can you, the Anti-Federalists said, we shouldn't have a strong central government because um, the only way to have a Republican form of government is through local, small, decentralized bodies. And um, Madison came out with this uh, um, argument that you could actually create uh, a Republican government on a larger scale uh, in line with how Montesquieu had imagined it um, through a kind of representative form of, of democracy. Um, part of the argument I'm, I'm making here is that um, representative form of democracy has failed uh, in, its, in its goal um, of preserving um, the kind of active, participatory, um, uh, Republican, small-R freedom that we were talking about. And the story that I'm telling about this is that if you look at um, the history of democratic practice and thought from the Greeks up until the 18th century, in every democracy, whether it was in Athens or whether it was in the the Italian city-states or elsewhere, the majority of political positions were chosen not by election, but by lottery. And they called it sortition. And if you look at Aristotle, and you look at Rousseau, and you look at Montesquieu, every single one of them said, democracies choose their representatives by lottery, Aristocracies choose their representatives by election. The reason being that the people who are going to win elections are generally the established people who um, make a claim to being more educated and more uh, rep- and 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 more capable, and they're going to have the money and they're going to have the support. And so, I think one of the things that happened is that not only has the United States government become bigger and more centralized, it's also become more elite. And more educated and more um, uh, and less representative of the people. And so, one of the movements that I'm interested in, one the probably the, the political movement I'm most interested in today, um, is one for citizen assemblies and sortition. Um, so, uh, actually, the RN Center has a, a program called um, the Bard Institute for the um, Rejuvenation of democracy through sortition, birds, 
and we'll be having a major conference in October on this exact issue. And we're going to be bringing people from around the world who are advocating to bring more and more people into the political process through lottery. Um, and there's a lot of different proposals for this and ways to do it. Some are actually suggesting that we include people in Congress in addition to the elected representatives through lottery. Some are saying we should create new bodies um, that advise and propose things to the Congress that are done through lottery. Um, there's a lot of a lot of countries are trying, like France right now is is engaging in a lottery-driven participatory poll or citizen assembly to try and figure out how to address the environmental problem. In Ireland, it was very famously, these citizen assemblies were used to, to deal with both abortion and gay marriage. And, and they've been incredibly successful because what they do is they bring in a much wider range of opinion and backgrounds and views, and then they let people talk to each other and they let them deliberate and they can bring in experts and bring in testimony. And what they found is that these groups, which have a much broader range of views at the beginning, end up with um, more interesting and more widely accepted solutions and resolutions than do typical elected representative bodies. And so um, the to me, one of the most promising ways of addressing this loss of faith and loss of trust in government um, is expanding the uh, group of people who actually are brought into the political process, um, not through elections or campaign financing, but actually through um, using lottery to select people to participate in these in these citizen assemblies. And that's something that the RN Center is going to be doing a lot of work on over the next um 12 to 24 months. So I've got a few thoughts on that. Um, I think in terms of, like, my foundation, um, my view might be a little different to yours, or at least in a difference of emphasis, in that I'm not necessarily sure it's the, the size or remoteness of government. Um, I do agree that there's, there's obviously a frustration and discontent with bureaucracy, right? Um, I think it's sort of an inability to to direct it, an inability to influence it. I think people, I think for a variety of historical reasons, our sort of political praxis in the United States over the last couple of generations has shifted from quite regionally based to quite nationally based. Um, and I'm actually okay with sort of saying, okay, so we're just talking about things in national terms now. Um, some people want to reduce it again, but my point would be if it's going to be at national terms, then that national government has to be influenced, or at least capable of being influenced by democratic majorities. And right now, it isn't. So I don't have a hard and fast position on citizen assemblies. But what I like about the way that you're thinking is that you're thinking about changing the structures of government. Because I think Americans right now, they they believe two things and they, they have to choose between them. They can't have both. One of which is they believe the government is broken and that someone needs to come along and give it a kick, be that Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, right? The other of which is that they really believe in the set of rules that governs the, the government. They will almost view the Constitution like we do the Ten Commandments, like it was handed down to us from God. And here's the thing. 
You can only have one of those, you know? Like, you know, either we have the Constitution, and the same rules and institutions and procedures will produce the same outcomes, or lack of outcomes, actually, or you can start thinking creatively about what changing those structures and um, institutions would look like. But I think Americans want to have both, and they can't. And that's sort of like a fundamental contradiction. Or they don't see that those things are fundamentally in contradiction. Um, the, the other point I, I would sort of make is I, I, can, I would bring this back to the conversation we were having about protest. And um, I was a little bit surprised, actually, to hear you say, you know, you, you, you view protest as a, as a failure. Because I think when I read your paper, I sort of... Um, it seemed like we have a similar view. So my view is that, and I take this actually from Machiavelli of all people, who has a little bit in the beginning of discourses where he said popular protest made the Republic of Rome both free and powerful. And the idea is that what the good protests ultimately do, he says there's three outcomes to a protest. It can get crushed totally, it can succeed totally, in which case you just have chaos, and that's actually no good, because usually that'll lead to political authoritarianism. Or, he said, it can succeed partially, and that's it's actually the partial success that you want, where you don't do enough to change the state, but you do enough so that the state has to give you a seat at the table. And the most, the, the, the sort of Example for that in the modern world, I would think of, is the civil rights movement, which includes both direct action and protest and sit-ins and marching, as well as sort of put pressure on politicians and legal cases type actions, right? Um, and it's big and it's messy, it's sometimes violent. Um, but what do you get? You don't get a total sweeping away of the US constitutional system, nor do you get something like Occupy, which just ends on a whimper. What you get is... The, the the grafting onto our current political institutions of a pre-existing set of institutions like black community centres and churches, black leaders, recognised figures, right? They're, they don't become powerful within the system, but they're given a place within it. And what people say when I do that narrative is they say, yeah, but, like, the state is not making room for protest. It's not making room for direct action. And, you know, it would be a great thing if it were, if we built out spaces within our constitutional system such that there is more room for direct citizen participation. But my, my answer is, well, power's never given, it's taken, you know? And the, the failures of protest, to my mind, are a call for more protest, in that it needs to be more successful than it is. It needs to be so successful that, you know, as happened with the civil rights movement, and obviously economic justice or whatever you want to talk about is very different, but that the leadership of that protest, as it were, is given a seat within the power structure, and then we have an avenue in which we can we can bring our participation to the political process. So that was a bit long, but that's sort of my think where my thinking is on that. So that's really helpful. Um, and uh, you know what I would say is that I think we where we disagree is maybe on some linguistic terms. Um, uh, but you'll tell me if I'm right or not. No, no, yeah, go for it. So, you know, the, you started by saying that there's a fundamental contradiction between 
sort of a, a reverence for the Constitution and fundamental change. Uh, and yet then you said, well, there's sort of three different kinds of ways that protests can work. They can be crushed, they can succeed, which leads to chaos, or they can succeed partially. And you gave the example of the civil rights movement. Correct. Um, now, that strikes me, the civil rights movement, if we, re if we remind ourselves, was a, a deeply constitutionally structured and oriented movement, saying the Constitution says these things, and they haven't been given for 200 or 100 years since the 14th Amendment, and we need to realize them or actualize them. So that struck me as a, a as a movement that led to fundamental change, which you called, but within and in fact mobilized by a constitutional um, argument. And I would say that the 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 linguistic. Yeah, no. That, can I just jump in and make a quick con, con, um, contribution there? Yeah, no. So you're right. So I'm using constitution in two different senses, which um, aren't super useful. So let's distinguish out constitution as like a set of founding principles and um, a constitutional argument being like an appeal to precedent and an appeal to particular narratives and discourses within American history. And constitution, let, let's not even say constitution, and a set of institutions and procedures on the other hand. So on the institutions and procedures, the civil rights movement required huge change to, like, the basic structure of our society and our democracy and how we do elections and so on. So in that sense, it was a huge constitutional shift. In the sense of constitution as, like, appeal to founding principles and stuff like that, um, it occurred within a constitutional framework. But I would say the basic structures and practices and rules of our democracy were very significantly changed by the civil rights structure. So does that help with the sort of contradiction you're driving at there? Well, I mean, I guess I would agree and disagree. I mean, on the one hand, yes, the society changed massively and the institutions changed massively. And yet I would say very much within and informed by a constitutional rhetoric and constitutional precedents and constitutional foundations. I mean, you know, the, the, it was a lot of it, a lot of those changes about voting rights, housing rights and, and, and education rights were actually brought about by the Supreme court and through constitutional interpretation. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think very much constitutional. So what I would say is though, that the difference that I would the 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 linguistic change or the linguistic uh, uh, um, uh, intervention that I'd like to make is when you say things like is protest um, successful. What I would say is that when protest is successful in the kind of institutional fundamental change in the sense that you're talking about it. I don't call it protest. I call it civil disobedience. To me, um, the difference between protest and civil disobedience. Again, I'm not against protest. I'm saying I'm, I'm being somewhat I'm being somewhat um, uh, linguistically precise here to try and make a point. I'm not against protest at all at all. But what I'm saying is, to the extent that protest is simply about uh, opposing 
the system and seeking, um, uh, you know, to express my dissatisfaction or to live in momentary bubbles of freedom, that's not civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is when organized minorities uh, come together and argue for political change and are willing to break the law uh, as a way of both A, um, making visible injustices in the system, and B, calling for fundamental change to the system, but not to break down the system, not to uh, reject the system, but to actually say the system to work as the system it should be in its best form needs to make these changes. And so Arendt, you know, in her essay on civil disobedience, um, actually makes the argument that in this sense, civil disobedience is at the very foundation of the American constitutional order. And though even though it's not mentioned in the Constitution, she argues that you can't imagine America without a tradition of civil disobedience, because our constitutional tradition is precisely one that allows for and encourages organized minorities to fight to re-make um, the system when the system is failing. And, um, and so that's, and so in that's my critique of protest is that it has um, increasingly imagined itself as um, against the system rather than about um, making fundamental changes within the system. Yes. So, okay, let me just first clarify something I was saying earlier, just because I think I was perhaps expressing myself inexactly. Let's use the word constitutional in the way you're using it, in which um, the civil rights movement was a constitutional movement. And then you can just talk about the rules of the game of politics. So the civil rights movement was constitutional in your sense, but it changed the rules of the game of politics insofar as, you know, now black people can vote in the South and stuff like that, right? And and, and have rights in the North, I mean, yes. very clear. Yeah. Um, Americans both dislike the way democracy is practiced, but also do not want to change the rules of the game. So more specifically, um, if I said something like, end the electoral college and go to popular vote, that actually doesn't poll very well. I think it's only about 40% support. If I said something like abolish the Senate and just have a, um, a a single legislative body, I've never seen polling on that, but I bet it's in the single digits. Um, if I said um, and, and, and make, or make the Senate more proportional in its representation or any of the sorts of changes that are sometimes being discussed... Um, Americans really don't want to do those things. But the thing is, those structures are producing outcomes or lack of outcomes. Those rules of the game are producing outcomes. And those outcomes won't change without changing the rules of the game. Um, it's kind of like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing as, and, and expecting a different result. And so we just keep electing more performatively angry or anti-establishment politicians, and they keep doing the same thing. Um, and I think there needs to be have a, have a conversation about, do the rules of the game change? Now, that might be citizen assemblies, it might be um, some of the, the sort of structural changes I'm talking about. It might be a whole a whole bunch of stuff. Now, that changing of the rules of the game could be done in a way that's constitutional, 
as the word you're using it, where we sort of draw on the constitutions, tr- constitutional traditions that, uh, that stress equal suffrage, that are Republican in their intent, and so on. You could make it within that broad narrative framing, but the rules would have to change. That, that's the point I'm driving at, if that was a little clearer there. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I would come back to what I said earlier about that we need to be more clear about what we're fighting for. Yeah, I agree with that. So, and yeah. I think that, the peop- that many of us are not. So just to use the two, you know, the, well, the main example you used, um, ending the Electoral College. You know, my view on that is um, that it's a red herring. Um, you know, the Electoral College is going to support um, uh, uh, rural voters uh, over urban voters. And so, um, and that was actually why it was input into the Constitution, um, because rural voters were afraid that they would be overwhelmed by democracies uh, centralized in urban centers. And, you know, I think the arguments to end the Electoral College now are of two kinds. One is um, purely partisan, which is that right now, the left controls the urban pol- the urban population centers and thus actually has a majority and therefore the left wants to get rid of the electoral college whereas by the way in the 18th century it was largely the left that supported the electoral college because they were afraid that the economic interests of the urban elite would take over the jeffersonian democratic interests of the local uh, agricultural people I mean, what's interesting is that you have a, a, a now an alliance between the, 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 the capitalist elite and the educated left um, against the Electoral College. The, and the other argument against the Electoral College is one of principle, which is democracy and uh, should rule. Uh, and yet, of course, so many on the left have argued against democracy, I mean, from Tocqueville and Madison to the present. And the worry about a, a democratic ty- tyranny or a tyranny of, of the majority. Um, again, I'm not saying I'm for or against the electoral college. Um, from my point of view, that's a that's a red herring. I agree with you. It's um, perhaps not a, 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 as big an issue as we think. Although it has changed the outcome of two presidential elections in living memory. Um, I would say the composition of the Senate is definitely um, just a big deal to the functioning of our of um, our, our democracy. Um, that's a whole bigger argument, and we can sort of um, get into it. I, I would maintain a belief in those sorts of structural changes, but that would be another uh, podcast. Let, let, let's circle back to the, the protest stuff. So, good. I like your distinction between protest and civil disobedience. That makes what you're, you're saying is a lot clearer. Is your... I mean, the, I would just put it in different language. I would say I'm for protest, but I'm very... I'm much more sceptical of protest when it's untethered from outcomes when it's essentially, when you can't ask the people doing it, what do they hope to achieve by this, other than some sort of generic innate good, which I'm not actually denying is very real and very powerful. Um, I, I completely agree with that, and I think, I said during Occupy, this needs more clearly stated goals, you know, and 
Um, you know, for all that I've sniped at the Sanders campaign, at least they sort of have a plan, you know? You can argue if it's a good plan or not, but, like, at least there's, like, a platform and, like, goals there, you know? Well, I think I think Senator Warren is the one who has more plans. Um, well, yes. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I think that's both a plus and a weakness of hers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying about protest. Uh, I agree... You know, I mean, whether Sanders has a thought-out plan or not, I, I don't know. Um, I think San Warren, much more than Sanders, has tried to work out the numbers. Um, I'm not sure either of them are accurate, but that's—at least she's tried. Well, what I mean is at least there's goals. Like, Bernie wants to be elected yeah. and pass a Medicare for all bill. Now, you can argue, like— is the strategy of doing that realistic? Are the policy details all there? That's a whole other conversation. I mean, at least there's something. You yes. know, Occupy didn't have anything. You know I, what I mean? Um, I, yeah. And I do... I do want protest to matter. I think there is that innate freedom good, but... But for very Hannah Arendt reasons, you're not going to... The freedom good can't be untethered from the desire to affect change in the world, I think. That's very much what I'm trying to, to put forward in this article that, you're, that we're talking about. I agree. Okay, so we... Should we end on a point of consensus? We can, you know, that... Jacques Rancière would be very upset because politics is about dissensus. Uh, uh, you know, from an Arendtian point of view, all consensus should be motivated by and made new and constantly revitalized by disagreement and it should never insist upon consensus but it should aim at creating new consensus and i think you know maybe i'll end here if that's yeah, okay yeah. with with this idea that for arent um one of the things that i think makes her both attractive and also not so attractive to many on the left today is that when she says she wants consensus. She's saying that politics is actually about the act of working together with people you disagree with, a plurality of people, to find a consensus. And that it's not about truth, it's about opinion. And as a result, um, we actually may need to go for a lowest common denominator of consensus. And that may mean that we create a political world that we share in common that allows a lot more freedom for people to do things differently locally. And I think we live in a time right now where people want everyone to live like they do. They do. And the left has its view of how everyone in the country should live, and no one should be able to be free to live differently. And by the way, many on the right believe that too. Um, and so um, an Arendtian consensus would be a lot more... Um, open to plural ways of living, I think, today than many um, centralists on both the left and the right um, would accept. And, and that is, um, but that to me, that's, that comes from her conviction that politics is about actually a real project of engaging with plural, a plurality of people who disagree, and that it's about persuading people to meet in some sort of a middle ground Middle ground may be the wrong word. Common ground, uh, wherever that is, and, and and finding that common ground is what politics is about. Awesome. So to close with, um, if people are interested in this conversation and haven't read Arendt before, where should they start? 
um, what's like a good first thing to pick up. And then if people want to follow you or the center um, on social media or on the website or whatever, where should they go? Yeah, so um, I, I, I often tell people who are interested in these questions to start with a, a book RN published uh, uh, fairly late uh, called The Crises of the Republic. It's got um, three long essays in it, one on civil disobedience, one on lying and politics about the Vietnam War and the Pentagon Papers, and one on called on violence, which is a which I've talked a bit about today, and is a long but I think incredibly um, uh, important essay. And then a, a short uh, interview at the end of it um, on revolution and uh, and on on revolution on revolution and revolutionary politics. Um, so it's got four essays. They're about political issues, uh, and I think they show. Um, and they deal with her idea of protest, civil disobedience, truth, politics. So I think that's a good place to start. Um, you know, the Hannah Arendt Center has a wide uh, range of, 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 of resources on the web. We have hundreds, maybe 500 um, videos uh, that people can watch on our YouTube channel and on our website. It's hac.bard.edu. Um, we run a, a virtual reading group that meets every Friday. Um, people all over the world together, and we read an essay or a chapter of Hannah Arendt. Uh, I introduce it, and we then uh, talk about it. Um, and uh, we we also have um, we have a, a fairly wide following on Twitter and Facebook. But again, our our our, our use of social media is more simply informational. It's telling you about the programs we have. We're not out there trying to be media influencers. Um, uh, I have I have a limited capacity and interest in that. Um, but yeah, I would really encourage people to to look at the center's website, look at our YouTube channel, and uh, if you're interested, join our virtual reading group, which is a lot of fun, and we, we're always looking for, for new people to uh, to come to enjoy reading Hannah Rent together. Awesome. I'm I am actually going to check out some of those things after doing this. So. We'd be thrilled to have you, Toby. I'd love it. Um, awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I definitely appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much.